You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.vin. Good morning. Welcome uh, to the bit where we open up the word together. I am so uh, pleased to be with you this morning. We are continuing on in our series in the book of John. And um, we're in the last part of, uh, of our series, which is so exciting as we get to hear the last words of Jesus. And so the last sentence in the book of John is this. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And I love that because I think what that shows is that we just get a snapshot of um, the life and ministry of Jesus. And I often wonder about those little conversations or big conversations that he would have had with his parents, with his friends growing up at the temple, with his disciples that weren't recorded and written down for us to read. I just wonder like, what was in all of those conversations. But I think what's really helpful as well to think on the flip side of that is that when we reflect on the words that Jesus actually spoke, the fact that they're written down means it's really important to listen to them. It's really important to take hold of what we do have recorded and what we do have to speak into our lives because Jesus knew that he was about to go to be with his father in heaven. And so as we kind of draw near to the end of his time here on earth, what he's saying to the disciples in that moment is really key, not only for them, but also for us as well. And so we're going to read together from John 21, verse 1 to 14. So it says this, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, it's the same place. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, a name which I feel is not often repeated enough. I feel like more people should be called Didymus anyway. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they were out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is a Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came back, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then following on from this passage is the moment where Jesus reinstates Peter. So I'm not going to read the entirety of it, but he, it's where he asks him to feed his sheep, where I ask him to um, renounce where he betrayed him and to you know, declare that he loves him, that uh, Simon Peter loves Jesus, and Jesus reinstates him in that moment. 
Why don't we just pray? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word it is living, that it is breathing, and that it speaks to us today. And God, I pray right now as we listen to your word, as we let that kind of ruminate in our lives, God, would you um, direct it to our heart and to our mind and to every circumstance and situation that we're currently facing and that we will face. And Lord, would you have your way? Would you bring your transformative power? God, would you um, let this land where it needs to in each of the lives um, represented on the live stream this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does Jesus say? He says three things, doesn't he? He says, firstly, friends, haven't you any fish? And they answer no. And so he says, throw your net onto the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So it's a direction. The second thing is bring some of the fish that you have just caught, an invitation. And thirdly, come and have breakfast, another invitation. And so in the context of his last words, um, you know, as Jesus is just about to go be with the Father, um, we can see that Jesus is reminding his disciples of some really key things, some really key principles to hold on to. And so that first one is proximity, proximity and familiarity. That is what he's reminding his disciples of. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, then you may be kind of having a sense of deja vu about this account that we've just read thinking, oh, I've, I've heard something similar to that in scripture before, and you'd be right. In Luke's gospel, we see Jesus calling Simon Peter, James and John to be his disciples in the same spot in the Sea of Galilee. And we see that in Luke 5. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because just for brevity's sake, but there are some really key similarities. So Jesus meets him at the Sea of Galilee. He sees them while they're standing at the shore whilst he's standing at the shore, sorry. He tells them to put their nets down despite them fishing all night and not catching anything. They get a large catch. Simon Peter responds to Jesus. They pull their boats in and they follow Jesus. Some really key similarities. And, it's so, and some people have even suggested that they're different versions of the same story. But actually, there's a really key difference. Jesus gets onto the boat with the disciples in the first story, but in John's gospel, he stands by the shore. Jesus doesn't get into the boat with them this time. He stands by the shore when we're reading in John's gospel. That is the difference. You know, the first time that they see him, he gets onto the boat with them. There is close proximity to Jesus in the first call. But in the encounter after the resurrection, they don't see and recognize him, but they listen to his voice. And once they see the fruit of the instruction of the Lord, they know that it is him. That is the key difference. You see, the disciples have been in such close proximity with Jesus up until this moment. And if we put ourselves in our shoes for a, in their shoes for a second, you know, they have lived such an intense period of time with Jesus for the last three plus years. You know, they have um, lived and breathed alongside Jesus. They have done ministry with him. They have had conversations with him. They have watched him as he has walked his way to the cross. They have seen him die on the cross. They have just witnessed his resurrection. And so for the disciples in this moment, goodness knows what's going on in their brains. But also, you know, they are so used to being in such close proximity with their friend, their Lord, and their Savior. And so what we're seeing here is a slight shift. We're beginning to see a shift in their, of them being used to, what, uh, sorry, of what they've been used to in the past. 
a while back, I was entrusted with a very precious thing, that of my friend's child. Uh, they asked me to babysit, and I was like, yeah, that's fine, I'll do that. And so I went along, I babysat, this is me, pre-kids, and um, done the dinner routine, everything was grand, was getting her ready for bed, everything seemed fine, they'd laid everything out on the changing table, I was like, great, this is this is all going swimmingly. Um, went to pick out the nappy, saw the nappy had like some really cute little fish on it, I was like, oh, that's adorable, they put pictures on nappies, how cute. Um, you know, got her ready for bed, did bedtime stories and prayers, she went to sleep, I was like, job done, nailed it. This is a walk in the park. <laughs> and um, I, uh, and I was invited back to do other babysits, so I was like, that can't have gone too wrong. Until like months later, months later, um, my friends, we were just chatting and they were saying, oh, I remember that time you babysat um, and you used the wrong nappies. And I was like, what? And uh, they were like, yeah, you used a swim nappy. I was like, a swim nappy? Like, what's the difference? The key difference of a swim nappy and a normal nappy is that they do completely different things. A swim nappy is there to expel anything that's, uh, uh, sorry, it's to contain, no, it is to expel. You're not meant to soak up the liquid in a, um, in a swim nappy so that the baby doesn't, you know, sink to the bottom of the pool. Uh, but a normal nappy is meant to contain the liquid. Obviously, by putting them in a swim nappy, water, well, not water, you know, <laughs> everywhere. And so this poor child is soggy through the night. I'd, you know, the parents had had to get up in the middle of the night to change them. I was completely blissfully aware. And uh, the reality was I was in proximity to the correct nappies. I just wasn't familiar with the right ones. I didn't have a clue which ones to use. And see, the thing is, if I'd been put in a room with that child as well back in those days and asked to, you know, just distinguish her voice from a whole bunch of other children's voices, I probably would have struggled with that too. But flip forward to now with my own children, if my own children are in a room with lots of other children, I can easily pick out their voices because I'm not only close to them, but I'm also really familiar with them. And I think that's the key here is proximity and familiarity need to happen in tandem. Jesus is preparing the disciples to live without his physical presence. He's drawing them back to a familiar place, a familiar situation, and yet he's not stepping in in a familiar way that they would have seen him move. He's prompting them to respond to his call, and their faith in him needs to be exactly that, faith, not sight. Their familiarity of his voice needs to be what keeps them moving and going where they need to, rather than his physical prompting. Jesus knows that he is about to go back to be with the Father, and so he's teaching the disciples to learn that before he goes. And he's calling out to them in just an incredibly friendly way. We we hear friends, but actually some of the the um, the commentaries and the scholars would actually say it's more like lads. Like the 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 language that he uses is very familiar. It's very um, relational language that he's using. And so for a stranger to speak out to the fishermen wouldn't be uncommon. It wouldn't be uncommon for strangers to stand on the shore and to maybe throw out jibes or to throw out instructions or kind of, oh, you know, you should do this or you should do that, unwelcome advice. So it would be quite odd for the fishermen to respond to a voice um, that's doing that, that's giving them instructions. But the key thing is that there was familiarity. They were familiar with his voice. And so once they saw the fruit of his instruction, they knew immediately that it was Jesus. See, we can be in proximity of someone or something and still not know a lot about them or understand them. On the other hand, we can be familiar with someone 
but the further away that we become from that person, that that kind of means that our familiarity can sometimes wane over time and become a shadow of what it once was. I think what Jesus is teaching the disciples here is that key partnership, proximity to him, but also familiarity of his voice. For them to continue with the mission that he has for them, they need to hold on to those two things. They have to draw near to him and listen for his promptings. They can't rely on what they've seen and what's gone before, but to continue with him as, they, as he ultimately will give them his spirit as his guide. And so for us, for people who have had to respond to Jesus through faith and not by sight necessarily, where does that land for us? You know, we've not had that same before and after that the disciples had. We've not had this kind of same but different moment. But we do have the equipping of his, um, of his word and also his spirit. You know, by the word, by the, the, the Bible that we have. When we... Um, when we, when we spend time in that, that's where we see his voice, his lessons, his heart, his correction, his faithfulness. That's when we see his plans and his purposes for our life because it is a living, breathing word. But also by his spirit that he gives us as well. We can sense where he's moving through the prophetic, through confirmation, through being in a community of believers. That's why it's so important to be in places like Connect Group and to be in places where we're in community with one another because we see where the spirit is at work amongst us. We see the direction called out in our lives through others as well and through being in and around people who are in discerning leadership above us as well who can kind of call that out as well. There's this partnership of being in the word and being in the spirit and seeing those things work in tandem and as we press into both of those things we begin to grow in our familiarity of his voice and of his promptings you know his directions become second nature sometimes even against the odds sometimes when we're operating in a place where we think we're comfortable we know best and this is kind of our territory like the disciples would have been you know fishermen who knew the ropes when we hear a direction that maybe goes against the grain, we know that it's Jesus because we're familiar to what he says and what he's doing in our life. And I think when you see some of the mothers and fathers in faith, you see that tandem working together, that proximity to Jesus and that familiarity of him, of, of knowing his voice and knowing his promptings. And so in what ways can we be drawing closer to Jesus, stretching those muscles of familiarity of his voice? learning the ways of the Lord through close relationship with him. And I just wonder for some people, just in that sense of um, the disciples uh, being in the boat, for some people um, it maybe feels like they're in a situation and they're not seeing Jesus in the boat with them. That doesn't mean that he's not by the shore. And I just wonder for some folk today, they're just sensing, I'm not hearing Jesus in the way that I would normally hear him. Just because maybe the familiarity of the pattern that's gone before isn't happening just now, doesn't mean that he isn't with you. Doesn't mean that he, his presence isn't with you. And my prayer and my encouragement is just to press in to see what Jesus is doing. Maybe he's doing a new thing. Maybe he's speaking in a new way. But the promise is he's still on the shore. He's still with you. The presence is still with you. So... As we continue through scripture, we arrive at Jesus' second utterings to the disciples. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So the disciples have just experienced another miraculous catch of fish. And awaiting them on the shore is already a fire burning with fish and bread on it. 
Jesus didn't need them to bring the fish in. He'd already provided for them. And yet he still asks them to bring some of the fish from their catch. I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, a lunchtime person who likes to take your lunch at school. Maybe growing up you, you were maybe the person who did steal a lunch. Awkward. But maybe you were um, the one who you know, had somebody every day stealing your lunch. I know I definitely had people at times try and nick my Kit Kat or my fruit winder. Um, they were kind of like high, high price tag items in the lunchbox um, situation. Uh, but recently I had this happen to me as an adult, not in the staff team, you'll be pleased to know, um, but in Sainsbury's. And so I had gone to Sainsbury's uh, to get a meal deal. And um, I was, I was, I don't know about you, but I like to curate, curate my meal deal. I don't like to just go in and grab anything off the shelf. I like to have a real think through, like, you know, what's the consequences of this meal deal? Is an obnoxious tuna sandwich going to kind of follow me around for the rest of the day? Have I got meetings? I need to think these things through. Am I going to really want these crisps in an hour's time? Or am I going to want a bit of chocolate instead? This thought that needs to go into a meal deal. Anyway, I'd come out. I was pretty happy with my curated meal deal and uh, also had a sneaky pastry on the side too. I came out of Sainsbury's and immediately was attacked by a said assailant. Came over my shoulder, tried to grab my lunch. Yes, I'm talking about a seagull. It happened twice and I genuinely believe it's the same seagull. Um, absolute monstrosity of a thing. And uh, you'll be pleased to know I mean, it really doesn't have any bearing on your life, but you'll be pleased to know that it didn't get away with any of my food. Um, but the audacity of the seagull swooping in to take everything and offer absolutely nothing. Only terror. Just tried to take everything and gave nothing. Jesus is not like that. Now, I realise that's a breakneck transition, but nonetheless, the truth still stands. Jesus does not swoop in and offer nothing and take everything. That gold did not bring anything to my lunch table, but Jesus does. See, Jesus calls the disciples into partnership with him afresh. He has already provided for them, and yet he still asks them to contribute to the breakfast table. And the word that is key is partnership. See, Jesus has just taken on death, and he's defeated it. He's done everything for us. The disciples are living in those first few days of the risen Jesus and they're experiencing the same man they knew, but he is different. He has done all that he needed to do. And in many ways, he could have just shown himself and then gone to heaven, but he doesn't. Jesus has shown them what it means to draw close to him, to listen to his voice, to see the fruit of his commands, and is continuing by drawing them into partnership. This is not a passive moment in the text. This is one of action. See, the context of this passage is quite interesting again. You know, as the angel tells Mary when she goes to the tomb, he says to her, you know, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. And then Jesus says again to the disciples, meet me in Galilee. So the disciples are doing that. You know, they move away from Jerusalem, a place where they thought is probably where their kind of destiny was going to be, back to the beginning, back to where they were originally from, where they spent so much time with Jesus, back to that place where Jesus first called them in that fishing boat. But since then, so much has happened. You know, so much is the same, and yet it is different in the same time. You know, Jesus died and rose again, and he's still asking for partnership from the disciples. And the symbols of the fish, you know, the first time he calls them, 
he says it will be fisher, fishers of men. And here again, he is reminding them that they, as they haul in this huge catch due to his promptings, he's asking them to bring his catch to him. He's like bringing in that recommissioning again, that, white, that bigger purpose. It's not just about physical fish. It's about extending the kingdom. It's about preaching his name and his word to as many people as possible. A symbiotic relationship. His promptings, their action, fruit beyond their imagination. His promptings, their action, fruit beyond their imagination. And there is a partnership being freshly offered despite their doubts, despite their betrayal and their uncertainty of what is to come. And this is in the wider context, as I mentioned earlier, of Peter being reinstated to pastor and feed his sheep, a fresh call to action. You know, they had toiled in a trade that they knew like the back of their hand and had come short. But Jesus prompts them and they are fruitful. I don't know if you ever feel like that sometimes when we try and do things in our own strength and we're just like, oh, getting nowhere. But when Jesus comes in, that's when things shift and that's when things change. There is fruitfulness in their obedience to his call. The fruitfulness doesn't come when we have been, just because we have been obedient. And so therefore we have made the fruit. That's not how it works. The fruitfulness comes from us being obedient and drawing closer to Jesus, remaining in him, being grafted to the vine. And in and through that, that's when we see the fruitfulness through his work in our life. And there isn't a passivity to this, but a partnership that he's calling into and that he's calling us into. And we see by Peter's response, when we give Jesus our yes, we are wired to respond to him. You know, Peter um, has just had this moment where he's just like launched himself towards Jesus. And I think when we hear the call of Jesus on our lives, when we hear his promptings, we are wired to respond, whether that's in a positive way or not so positive way. We are wired to respond. So when Jesus says to you, bring your fish, what does that look like? What does it look like for you to bring a fresh catch of obedience to his call on your life? Sometimes that obedience can be really easy. You know, it can be really exciting and really clear and a real sense of like, you know, go get him type feel. Sometimes that obedience can feel more confusing or overwhelming or even just as a last resort. I've definitely walked in both camps of that sense of obedience. And I can honestly say that God has met me every single time from a sense of heartbreak and a call to ministry, which felt like, you know, this is an obvious moment. I'm going to give my yes to it. I'm not quite sure where you are, God, but I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other and hope for the best and hope that you're in this. I think sometimes it feels like that at times when it comes to obedience, just one foot in front of the other. Jesus is calling us into fresh partnership with him today. We... We may be coming at that with clarity. We may be coming at that with confusion. But I think there is a fresh call to move with him. And as we actively engage in the proximity and familiarity of his voice in our lives. And I wonder for some people if they have a sense of, I don't really know what I've got to give Jesus. You know, the disciples have got this very physical moment of bringing their catch to the breakfast table. But I think it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? And when you think about what is the catch in your life that you're bringing to the breakfast table with Jesus, I'm reminded of the moment where Moses was called at the burning bush and he had his hands, 
He had his speech and he had his staff. And yet God met him in that moment and he gave him everything he needed and he used everything that was in um, Moses' proximity to fulfill his plans and his purposes for his people in Egypt. He used his staff, he used his voice, and he used his hands to be able to do what God had planned. We just need to give God our yes. Regardless of what we feel like we have in our hands, God can do the immeasurably more. And so it just starts with a yes. And so my encouragement to you this morning is, whatever you feel like you've got in your hands, just bring your yes to Jesus and start that journey with him of partnership today. And so finally, we look at Jesus' last words in this particular passage. Come and have breakfast. That's my kind of uh, invitation. I love that. And so Jesus is inviting them to partake in his provision for them. 25 years ago, plus um, a man named Gareth Southgate. For those of you who are football fans, you'll be immediately knowing who that is. I said Gareth Gates accidentally in one of the services. Completely different people. But Gareth Southgate um, is a, a footballer and now manager. And uh, in the Euros of 96, uh, he was part of the team that had got to the semi-final. It was on home turf. Everyone was feeling really excited. They were like, football's coming home. And uh, they got to penalties. And unfortunately, he missed. And so they didn't bring football home. And uh, yeah, sadly, that was that. Was that. And... Um, it was one of those moments which obviously news coverage got hold of. Lots of people talked about it in interviews. In some ways, it kind of, kind of overshadowed, not overshadowed, but was kind of followed him throughout his career. Fast forward to the point where we get to the Euros um, recently, and he is a manager. And so there's lots of chat about this. You know, oh, he knows what it's like to be a player in the Euros and to get to you know really high heights in his professional career. So we get to the final, people are like, football's coming home. And uh, everyone's really excited. They're like, maybe this is the moment, gets to penalties. And uh, again, deja vu moment. Unfortunately, England do not bring it home and we miss on penalties. And the response was brutal, actually. It was, it was totally um, abhorrent in some cases. But actually, a lot of the conversation... Um, in some of the interviews and everything, turned to his own experience, Gareth's own experience of the, the Euros that he participated in in the 96 Euros. And, you know, oh, he'll know what the guys are feeling like. He'll know exactly what is going on in the changing room and everything. He'll be able to put himself in his player's shoes. And so they interviewed him and, you know, they kind of pressed on that a little bit. And interestingly, he could have said lots of different things to cover his own back as a manager because they're under a lot of pressure. And uh, he could have said, oh, you know, they're just inexperienced players, or they're just really young, they crumbled under the pressure, you know, they felt the weight of their country, they felt the eyes of the world on them, and they just crumbled under the pressure. He could have said that quite easily and just chalked it up to inexperience, but he didn't. He said this, he said, we win and we lose as a team. I was the one who set them up. I am the one who takes responsibility for the loss. He covered them in that moment. He provided for them in that moment. He knew what it was like to live with that, overshadowing your career. And so he covered for his players in that moment. Jesus covers us with his provision. He knows where the disciples are at. 
He knows they are in this waiting space. He knows the inactions and the actions that they have taken leading up to this point. He knows the betrayal of Peter. He knows the doubting of Thomas. He knows it all. He knows that they've gone out to fish and caught nothing in their own strength. And so he covers them with, the, with his provision. He provides for their needs. He knows exactly what they need in that moment. What do they need? They need a good breakfast to nourish them after a hard work on the, you know, in the nighttime. And they need their soul spoken to. When you look at Peter's response to Jesus, when he knows that it's Jesus, um, yeah, when he knows that it's Jesus, you can tell the relief that he must feel. But when you think about Peter's journey up until this point, you know, he has betrayed Jesus. Jesus told him, you know, you're going to betray me. Peter was like, no, I'm not. He does. I don't know about you, but if you've ever hurt someone that you're really close to, that first time that you see them face to face, deep down, all you want to know is that you're okay, that you're reconciled, that everything is going to be okay between the two of you. There's a desperation to know that what I've done to hurt you is going to be reconciled. And so Peter's reaction shows that desperation. It shows that he wants to be with his friend, his Lord, his Jesus. And, and Jesus meets him in that place. He provides for him by saying, let's go again, Peter. You know, again, Peter is back in this place where it had all begun in Galilee. And it will have held so many familiarities, um, you know, his home. And yet there is a difference. He is living in the light of Jesus dying on the cross and the shadow of his betrayal. He's in this waiting space. He won't want to stay in that place. And as he responds to Jesus' invitation, Jesus doesn't let him stay in that place either. I know for me, there, this scripture speaks to um, times in my life where I felt the shadow of my own shortcomings. Around eight years ago, I experienced what some would call a dark night of the soul. And I went into a really bad depression and I had to lay down a sense of call to ministry, which it broke me. And um, in some moments I, you know, it was just, it was really tricky to put one foot in front of the other, I'll say that. But I lived what felt like a shadow for a very long time. And in that space, I wasn't the best leader. I made mistakes. I felt the furthest from God that I'd ever felt. And in many ways, I'd been trying to operate on my own strength up until that point. And I really had to learn what it meant to be carried by God. For a long time, I lived with a sense of guilt and shame and a deep sense of letting God down. And I allowed the lies of the enemy to shape some of that thinking around me and who I was and what I should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And that shame and that guilt didn't come from the depression. It came from a sense of laying stuff down that God had given me. But what I know is that God provided for me and covered for me in that time. He brought breakfast for my soul. He drew me out of that darkness bit by bit. And there were so many times that I wanted to give up. Yet he gave me that strength to put one foot in front of the other. And I think the obedience of the call of Jesus can sometimes feel like that, just one step at a time. But I have experienced the mercy and the grace of God, his gentle whispers of, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with those hopes and those dreams that you've locked away in your heart, the gentle recommissioning of let's go again. 
I don't know where each of you are at this morning. The reality is that we all fall short of the plans and purposes that God has for us in our lives. We all face the nighttime hard work of life. We all face in one way um, or another a sense of doing all that we can with little or nothing to show for it. The truth is this morning that whatever your shortcomings, Jesus always meets us on the shore with provision for our souls as well as our bodies. Philippians 4 verse 19 says this, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. All your needs, not some of them, not a few of them. He will meet all your needs. Our posture is to return to communion with Jesus, whatever we face. He will bring his provision of presence with us, to us. Jesus is showing the disciples and us that whatever you face, whatever we face in the waiting period, which for us is a time between now and eternity, whatever we face in our own shortcomings or in our own nighttime of life, he will always meet us in that place. He will always provide for our every need. And when we fall short, he will recommission. He will tell us to go again. When we step out with God, we inevitably make mistakes in our humanness. That is just part and part of the course. We will fall short, but we always have an invitation to come and to eat breakfast with the Lord. We always have the invitation to come and to receive his presence and his sustenance for what we have endured and what we are yet to face. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would draw close to the Lord, that we would know his proximity and his familiarity, that we would be able to give our fresh yes to him in partnership with him, knowing that he has done everything that we could ever ask or need of, and yet he still invites us into a partnership, into a journey with him, and that we would know, regardless of what happens between now and eternity, he is a God of provision for every need that we have, both to our soul and to our physical being. And so why don't we pray? Father God, I thank you that you are a God who is not distant. I thank you that you are a God that draws close to us, that you are a God who invites us into communion, into relationship, into um, friendship with you, God. Jesus, I thank you for your work on the cross and what that means for us, that when we do fall short, we are covered by your grace and by your forgiveness and by your mercy. And that it doesn't just end there, but that you pick us up and you recommission us to go again, time and time again. And so, Lord, we lay everything again afresh at the foot of your cross this morning. Everything that we're proud of and not proud of. And we say, Lord, would you take... Um, would you take my life afresh? Would you pour out your Holy Spirit? Would you meet me in my yes of obedience? And God, would you show me where you are in that? Would we hear your voice afresh this morning, Lord? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.